All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. It's part of this long sequence of events where Paul is incarcerated and facing various hearings and trials before various Roman rulers. And so at this point in the story, Paul has been under arrest in Caesarea for two years with no movement on his trial. Felix has been holding him, really hoping for a bribe. We learned that, that he's hoping Paul will just kind of pay him off and then maybe he can just make his case go away. And at the same time, he likes, he's kind of curious about Paul, so he likes to hear Paul speak. So Paul has been sitting for two years uh, in, uh, really under arrest in Caesarea, being held in sort of light protective custody in the former palace of Herod there in Caesarea. And while noting that, we have to also keep in mind that in the background, the background of the story of Acts, but also in the background of Paul's mind, is the promise Jesus gave to Paul in Acts 23, 11, and that promise was that just as you've testified in Jerusalem, you're also going to testify in Rome. So Paul's been assured somehow he's going to get to Rome. And that has really set the theological direction of this long narrative from chapter 23, 24, 25, 26, and onward to the end of the book of Acts. So there's Paul sitting in Caesarea for two years, no forward movement on his trial, somehow knowing that he's been reassured by Jesus that he's going to get to Rome in some sort of way. And this particular story that we're going to look at helps us realize that there is an interplay between divine providence and human agency, human decision-making, because Paul's going to make a choice in this story that's going to be the catalyst for carrying this story forward and how he's going to end up at Rome to stand trial in Rome as well. Now, historically, at the end of these two years, while Paul has been sitting there, the reason there's a change is because the governor, Felix, who's been the one that has been holding him in Caesarea, is recalled by the emperor, and the emperor at this time is Nero. He's been recalled by Nero under the charge of maladministration of his province, and he's replaced by a new governor, a man by the name of Portius Festus, in the summer of 59. So we know when these events take place, these events take place in the summer of 59. And Josephus portrays Festus as an honorable and capable ruler, but he took over a situation in the province of Judea where he faced just one significant crisis after another. And even though he is seen in Acts, really, as well as in Josephus, as an honorable and capable ruler, his reign ended uh, early on and fairly abruptly with his untimely death in 62. The events here in Acts 25 take place just a few days after he arrives in the province in the summer of 59. And with the change of governors, Paul's case now gets fresh attention. Here's what happens. Festus then, this is verse 1 of chapter 25, Festus then, after arriving in the province, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea three days later. And so Festus arrives in the province of Judea as the newly appointed governor. And three days after he arrives, he gets in, he settles in, he unpacks all his stuff, he gets his household set up there in Caesarea. And three days later, he heads up to Jerusalem. And the reason for the visit is 
Felix had left the situation in Judea in really a bad state with very strained relations. Uh, there's a long backstory to that historically, and we won't go into all the details of that. But needless to say, the Jews and the Romans, there was growing tension anyhow because of the rise of Jewish nationalism. Felix made matters worse. And so Festus, knowing he needs the cooperation of the Jewish leadership for things to go well, knowing the relationship is strained between the Roman government and the Jewish leadership, Three days after he arrives in Judea, he heads from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. While he's there, the Jewish leadership immediately uh, reminds him of this case with the Apostle Paul. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews, that is, the Jerusalem leadership, brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with Festus, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. So they haven't given up their plan and their hope of ambushing Paul and killing him. Remember, that's what got Paul transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea in the first place. Well, they haven't given that plan up. They're hoping to try out the new governor. Maybe he you know, won't understand the full situation. He's the new guy. Let's test him out. And they're hoping that he will transfer Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, they can carry out that plan they had a couple years earlier of ambushing Paul and killing him. And one of the things that's fascinating to me in this moment is that in view of all the crises plaguing the Jewish nation, plaguing the region of Judea, in view of some of the, the things that led to Felix being recalled, this is one of the first things that the Jerusalem leadership uh, brings up to Festus. And it reminds us of how really serious this is for the Jews and how much they despise Paul and they despise the Christians and they despise what Paul and his uh, preaching the gospel to Gentiles stands for. And so they, they, they try to test out Festus and see, will he work with us and can we finally get rid of Paul? Here's how Festus responds in verse 4. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody in Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly and go back to Caesarea. Therefore, he said, here's Festus's words, verse 5. Therefore, he said, have the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, have them bring charges against him. And so Festus is like, no, I'm not going to bring him here. You guys can come with me and you can bring the charges against him. So Festus spends some more time in Jerusalem doing what he needed to do, the business he needed to tend to, building relationships and seeing the nature of Jerusalem, kind of getting the lay of the land, right? Doing all that stuff. So verse 6, after Festus has spent no more than eight or ten days among them. So he spends another week, week and a half among the Jews there in Jerusalem. Then he went back down to Caesarea, and on the very next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So he stays among the Jews for in Jerusalem for a week to ten days. He heads to Caesarea. Once he arrives in Caesarea, uh, the Jewish leadership are already there with him. 
And so the very next day, he orders for a hearing with Paul and he orders Paul to be brought. Paul's brought to his judicial tribunal and they're going to have a hearing. And Luke just summarizes this one. He doesn't give us all the details as he did with Felix. So verse seven, after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. So Paul is in the middle and they're all around him. And they were bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. So there's the summary. We can assume it's the same sort of things as they said when Paul was tried before Felix, but we're just given the summary. The charges are many, the charges are serious, and the charges are unsubstantiated. They can't prove them. There's no evidence for them. That's Luke's summary of this hearing and the charges brought against Paul. We can believe that it probably involved the same sorts of thing against the temple, against the law, against uh, Caesar and the sedition and the stirring up riots, because that's what Paul responds to. Verse 8, while Paul said in his defense, and here's the summary of Paul's defense, I have not done anything wrong either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. And so Paul asserts his innocence in view of these religious charges, and he he asserts that I'm not against Caesar. I haven't done any uh, committed sedition against Caesar, treason against Caesar, or anything like that. But Festus, new to the realm, uh, Festus needing to try to win the Jews over to his side, Festus needing to smooth over strained relations from Felix's bad rule, Festus, verse 9, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And so Festus is still saying it'll be a Roman trial. You'll stand trial before me, but are you willing to go to Jerusalem and do it there? This is Festus's way of trying to placate the Jews who asked for Paul's case to be brought to them. And it's also Festus's way of honoring Paul's Roman citizenship. That's why he asks. He asks because Paul is a Roman citizen. He has the trial briefs from Felix's uh, case. And so he knows Paul's standing and Paul's status. And so he asks Paul if he's willing to do that. Paul is completely unwilling. And here's Paul's response in verse 10. Seeing that Festus is willing to make concessions to Jews, Paul does not believe he can get a fair hearing. So he says, but Paul said to them, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried as a Roman citizen. And in view of what they're trying to accuse me of, this is where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If therefore I am in the wrong and have committed something deserving death, I'm not trying to avoid execution, but if there is nothing to the accusations which these men are bringing against me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul's response is strong, forthright, and powerful. Uh, His claim is that Festus really does know better, and he knows that there's nothing substantial to these charges. He knows that Paul really is innocent. That's what Paul believes and claims and puts that back in Festus's lap. And so he says, look, if there was really anything, uh, I'm in the wrong on anything, and I've committed something deserving of death, I'm not going to try to avoid it. In other words, since the Romans are the only one who technically have the right of capital offense. If there is a Roman crime, a crime against Roman law if committed, then deal with it. If not, 
then you're not going to hand me over to these guys. Paul does not believe he can get a fair trial. Paul sees that Festus is already willing to try to placate the Jews and make concessions to them. So he's done with that. And so he says, I appeal to Caesar. And this is Paul's legal right as a Roman citizen to go over the governor's head and to appeal to a hearing before Caesar himself as a Roman citizen. And so Paul, having sat for two years, now makes the decision that Jesus promised I would, I would get to Rome. I'm not sure if this is what he has in mind. Maybe this is. I appeal to Caesar. And that's how Paul's going to end up getting to Rome is this appeal to Caesar. So here's Festus. He's been in Judea at this point for two weeks. Here is his first trial that he's hearing as governor of the province. And immediately the guy goes over his head to the emperor himself. And this is really a difficult spot for Festus to be in. And Festus conferred with his council, verse 12, uh, and then finally conceded it just, I've got to kind of let this go. So he conferred with his council and answered, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar shall you go. In fact, his, uh, historian that's an expert in ancient Roman history said, no sensible man with hopes of promotion would dream of short-circuiting the appeal to Caesar unless he had specific authority to do so. And in this case, Festus confer- concludes that it's really not best. He does this in con, you know, conjunction with his council and decides there is no good reason for me not to grant this appeal. So he says to Paul, to Caesar, you shall go. Now, what this means for Festus is he's got to pull together all the proper paperwork and proper documentation, court proceedings and hearings, charges. He's got to send an official cover letter with all of that. And so he's got to pull together all this paperwork. And he's the new guy on the block. He, he's got the trial briefs from Felix, but he, he it becomes clear he feels a little sheepish and a little awkward because this is his first case. He's only been here two weeks, and now he's sending someone to uh, Emperor Nero for a hearing, and he really is not even sure how to present the case because of the nature of the charges. So it's not like Paul is going to be sent immediately. Festus has to kind of pull things together and arrange transport and all of that. Well, as he's arranging all of that and trying to figure all that out, as well as dealing with all the other stuff of being the new governor in the region, Another local ruler comes to pay his respects and visit the new Roman governor on the block, and this ruler is King Agrippa. That is Herod Agrippa II, and he comes to Caesarea to pay his respects, verse 13. Now, when several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea, paying their respects to Festus. And so, as another local ruler over the northern territories... Agrippa recognizes that it's in his best interest to befriend Festus and cooperate with him and at least build some political bridges because they're going to have to work together to some degree. So he comes down to Caesarea to visit. And as noted, this is Herod Agrippa II. He is the son of Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12 is the one who beheaded the apostle James, arrested Peter, Uh, and Peter had that angelic jailbreak. Well, this is his son, uh, Herod Agrippa II. And Bernice is Herod Agrippa II's sister. 
She has her own interesting story, and we don't have time for all the details of it, but at this point in her life, she's about a year younger than Herod Agrippa II, so he's about 32, she's about 31. She's already been married twice, and both of those husbands have died after she's been married to them for a short time. She has a couple of kids, and so now, as a two-time widow, she has come to live with her brother, Herod Agrippa II, and now she is traveling with him. There were all sorts of wild speculations and rumors about the nature of their relationship, right? The Herods weren't the most moral family, uh, and so there was wild speculation about all that. Don't know whether any of that was true, but here she is with her brother, Herod Agrippa, and they come to pay respects to Festus to really build some kind of political relationships here. Verse 14, and while they were spending many days there, so they're there for a good chunk of time. They've made the journey all the way from the north down here to Caesarea, so they're going to spend a chunk of time there. And while they're spending many days there, Festus presented Paul's case to the king. So he lays out uh, the nature of Paul's case. And here's how he presents it. He says, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I replied to them that it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any person before the accused meets the, his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. This is Roman legal practice, and that's what happened in the case of Felix, right? They came down from Jerusalem and they laid out their charges before Felix against Paul. Paul made his defense. It's already happened at this point with Paul before Festus. And so as he's recounting what happened, he simply mentions that he was telling the Jews they needed to come and bring their charges against Paul. Verse 17, so after they had assembled here, recounting this event, I didn't delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and I ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they did not begin bringing any charges against him of crimes that I suspected, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion. And so Festus, recounting what happened to Agrippa, basically says, this wasn't like a Roman legal issue. This was, this was like an intramural Jewish debate about finer points of their own belief system and their own religion. That was part of it. And then he says, not only that, they also had some disagreements about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And this has been the focal point, and Paul's made this the focal point, since he was in Jerusalem two years earlier, when he brought that up before the Sanhedrin, uh, then he brought it up with Felix. Apparently, he brought it up again before Festus, that Paul keeps focusing the issue on the resurrection, the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus, a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. And all throughout the book of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus has been central, and that's important for us to observe and to remember. In fact, if you go clear back to Acts chapter 1, when they're choosing a replacement apostle, they specifically describe his job as being a witness with us 
of his resurrection. And that's crucial. And that's really at the heart of what it means to to speak and proclaim the gospel. It's to testify to Jesus' resurrection and that by virtue of his resurrection, he is now king and Lord and calling all people everywhere to repent. And that's been central all throughout the book of Acts. And Paul wants to make it central here in his trial. And so he keeps drawing people's attention back to that. Well, Festus lays that out to Agrippa and says, here's the nature of the case. And then he explains, like, and yet he appealed to Caesar, and I'm not sure what to do with it about all this. So verse 20, he says, and being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered that he be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And so he's like, I wasn't really sure how to proceed with this. I wanted to see if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't. He appealed to Caesar. So now I'm holding him and preparing everything to send him to the emperor. Agrippa as a fairly long-term ruler of the Jews, he himself has been in power for about nine years at this point, and certainly his family has had a long history from the days of Herod the Great here, and so, and he has some Jewish blood flowing through his veins, so he knows about the way of Jesus. He understands the Jewish religion. He, he gets all of that, and so Agrippa's interested in Paul's case, and so verse 22, he says, then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, Festus said, you shall hear him. And so they're going to arrange another hearing for Paul, this time with the new audience of Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. Now, let me just offer one little reflection before we wrap up this section. Because as I've noted, this is really part of one big long story that I think serves in a lot of ways as sort of a worldview builder for us who want to follow Jesus. And it does so in this way. It helps us see how God's providential sovereignty and care sort of plays out, at least in a specific instance. And what we see in this specific scene of this story is we see that God's sovereignty, remember, God promised Paul that you're going to testify in Rome. So he's in charge. He's sovereign. He's working all this out. But God's sovereignty doesn't negate human agency. Paul makes a choice to appeal to the emperor. Now, how did that come about? Did that come about from two years of reflection and waiting? We don't know all that. We don't get all that. What we get is Luke's telling of the story. And what we see then is that God uses human choices, Felix's choices, Festus's choices, Paul's choices to carry out his plans. And Paul is going to end up in Rome as a prisoner of the state. He's going to be escorted all the way to Caesar's household itself, and he's going to stand trial in Rome. This is how it's going to happen, because Paul appealed to Caesar. And it just helps us realize that God's sovereignty isn't like fate. It's not just, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That we get to interplay with God in that, and God, in his power and in his majesty, will use our choices and the choices of others around us to work out his will. And so we are real players in how God is actually going to further his promises and his purposes. 
and thus divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility or human agency.